Well, if you're watching what seemed to be in were yesterday some exciting football playoff games, you may, you may, those of you in a certain age, have been drawn back to one of the great teams in the history, I think, of uh, professional football, the 1963 Chicago Bears. Chuck Billington, uh, Charles N. Billington more formally, has written a fabulous book called The 1963 Chicago Bears, George Hallis and the Road to the NFL Championship. Chuck, how are you? I'm doing fine, Rick. Thanks so much. Uh, it's, it's just a great book. Let me ask you first. You've written a book about the Cubs before that. You were. Uh, it's not as if you live in the past, but you have some experience as a youth with the 63 Bears. What was it about this team that so grabbed you? Yes, well, I'll tell you, I also, similar to my 1959 White Sox book, um, I I was a a young guy in my formative years in in 63. I was a try-hard high school quarterback myself that year. And uh, What high school? What high school? What high school? North Park Academy. Yeah. And the, the Bears that year kind of captured the city's imagination because they finally climbed the mountain and beat the Green Bay Packers twice to take the title. And everybody, of course, was saying, oh, this is so wonderful. George Hallis is a 68-year-old owner coach, and he won another title after not winning one since 1946. Yeah, But, you know, most of the credit for the team and their success goes to a man named George Allen, and also, to a certain extent, uh, his coach, Jim Dooley. So um, this was a city that was also starved for championships. The Cubs, of course, lost a seven-game World Series in 45. The Chicago Cardinals, whom few people followed, won a championship in 47 and lost one in 48. The Bears got smeared by the Giants in 56. The White Sox had a great season but ended in disappointment against the Dodgers in 59, and Chicago finally had a championship the very cold December of 1963. Speaking of how cold it was, we're going through quite a cold front now, obviously, in Chicago. (laughs) But but between December 11th and December 22nd in 1963, the temperature was only above zero on two days for a high. Well, and the great thing is there were no down jackets in those days either. I mean, because right. right. one of the great things about about your book is fabulous, Chuck, on a number of different levels. It's called the '63 Bears, and it's not. You're really wonderful about about being evocative about and and vivid about the season itself and the players and the games, but there were so many other things overshadowing. I think this. This team, the fact I saw games, I'm old enough to have seen games at Wrigley Field where the Bears played. You were, too. And you bring that up in the early chapters of the book. Yes. Remind people, I I don't mean to over-romanticize that setting, but it really was something, was it not? It was a very, very, very wonderful place to watch a pro football game, like all the old yeah. Um, baseball stadiums that had teams were. If you had seats uh, along the third base line of Wrigley Field and you're, you were lucky enough to be in the first couple rows, you were essentially right at the back of the Bears bench. And the Bears would often talk to the players yeah. that were yeah. uh, just on the first couple rows. And then if you were on the first base side, you were actually 
in the end zone because the end zone, the south end zone of Wrigley Field, as most people know that remember, was not a full end zone. It was not the complete rectangle exactly. that we're used to. Right. One corner was cut out because of a because of a dugout. You know, and, the and they thing- put boards they put boards over the dugout to complete a corner of the end zone. Yeah. The Bears, by the way, used that to their advantage when Del Schaffner was wide open for a pass in the end zone, and Davey Witzel, a very cagey uh, defensive back, was guarding him, and everybody said, well, uh, Schaffner's going to completely have his day with Witzel because he was a, a, a illustrious uh, New York Giants star with the New York media behind him. He's wide open for a pass. Witzel starts yelling, the wall, the wall, look out for the wall. Schaffner <laughs> takes his eyes off the ball. He drops it. Suddenly, the Giants lose out on a touchdown. Unbelievable, unbelievable. You know, I know you you went out and tried to interview as many of the uh, participants still alive and still, you know, uh, sort of ambulatory. What was that like? Was it was it difficult? I know it was difficult to get the sum. Yes, very difficult to get the sum. Some are very uncommunicative, uh, either because they didn't want to talk about it or because of health reasons. Uh, I was very fortunate in having a long and very, very informative conversation with Ronnie Bull. Mm-hmm. I also, prior to uh, their uh, passing away, I was fortunate enough to talk with Doug Atkins, oh. the monstrous uh, defensive end in the Hall of Fame, and also Bill Wade, the Bears quarterback. And I also uh, had an engaging uh, meal with Ed Obradovich talking about the book as well. Yes, who I and see most, definitely. who I see most Sundays here, and who is a, that's who is, right. I find him a charming. I'm glad I don't play on the Bears now because he would not uh, be yes. friendly to me. But he's, I find him a charming, charming guy. Yes. And and the era, you know, what impresses me so much. I think now even the most ardent fan. It feels kind of remote from the game. Uh, I, I don't know if it's my place to say, but but in reading your book, there is such an intimacy to the game and to the heroes. I mean, someone like, uh, you know, Rick Caceres, who was a great running back, mm-hmm. was making $20,000 a year, for goodness sake. Right. Although, although, dot, 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 $20,000 in 1960 was... Uh, a pretty darn good salary, and uh, Caceres lived very well. Um, but I know exactly what you're talking about. The yeah. big money in the NFL didn't come until 1963-64. Because of TV. Yeah, $4.6 million TV contract through CBS. Suddenly, almost every team could meet its payroll yeah. before it sold its tickets. Because the salaries in the NFL were quite low. The highest paid player in 63 was Jim Brown at 40000 The second highest was Y.A. Tittle at 36000 The highest paid player on the Bears in 63, as far as I can determine, was Caceres at 23000 And um, uh, And the other thing is, and, and um, you know, this is just the fact that the Bears were kind of slow to come to the party in terms of big revenue. Yeah. The Bears were one of the three poorest paying teams in the league along with Philadelphia and um, Pittsburgh. Well that had- uh, most of the Bears 
most of the bare salaries were between uh, eight and twenty thousand dollars a year. Well, one of the other things that's fascinating about about your book, and I, you know, I was old enough to read newspapers at the time. The nineteen sixty three yeah. Chicago Bears, George Hellison, the road to the NFL championship. That road was, and we'll talk about it after a short break, Chuck Billington. Uh, that road was shadowed by some some serious serious uh, gambling troubles was it not yeah yeah let's talk about that and Mm -hmm. then i also want to talk i've always been fascinated with hallis i've been fascinated with hallis ever since you know i I saw him on the sidelines and ever then learned that he that he he survived the eastland disaster because he slept too late to be on the boat i mean it's a fascinating 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 human being and i find him in this book, sort of a little Shakespearean. So let's, in a, after a short break, Chuck, hang on, and we'll talk about gambling and Hallis as a Shakespearean character. So thank you. We'll be right back. Uh, my guest on the phone, and this is Rick Kogan, back in the radio business after a, a, a reluctant interlude. Uh, Chuck Billington is the author uh, of a book called Comiskey's Comiskey Park's last World Series, the history of the 1959 Chicago White Sox, which was published a few years ago. His new book is the 1963 Chicago Bears, George Hallis and the Road to the NFL Championships. They are not merely sort of nostalgia trips. They are they are very intense and well-researched looks at uh, an era that many, many of us still remember uh he brings the games themselves back vividly but also surrounds these stories of the games and the players with uh you know sort of societal troubles the the it it was a revelation to me to understand chuck before the big tv money came into this thing how 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 big and damaging a deal gambling potentially was to the nfl at the time wasn't it Yes, it was. Yeah. And, you know, in many ways, the, I, I, the league was not founded on the basis of setting up a gambling mechanism. Right. So many of the owners in the 1920s came from, I'll call it the sporting life background, because in those days, uh, there was a certain amount of, it wasn't all dishonor to be a professional gambler. Right. But the Marlins, Tim Mara, who owned the New York Giants, Arthur Rooney, who one day won an incredible $250,000 in a racetrack uh, in the 1930s and then mm-hmm. bought the Pittsburgh Steelers for $2,500. Mm-hmm. Dick Richards, who was a car dealer in Detroit, moved the Portsmouth uh, Lions to Detroit to become the Detroit Lions. Uh, the really only owners that weren't involved... Uh, or administrators that weren't involved in gambling was Hellas, who was threatened within an inch of his life, according to some books, by his father, if he ever gambled, and also Curly Lambeau, who founded the um, Green Bay Packers. Many of the other owners were involved in gambling routinely, and uh, there's even, as I cover in the book, and is also covered in the McClellan Committee in Congress, investigations into Carol Rosenblum, the owner of the Baltimore Colts, not only on his team, but also against his team. And there's quite a few books and and, uh, monographs that that talk about this as well. Well, but yours does, too, and I find it fascinating. That's one of the the things, I mean, you know I love your writing, and and I adore your 
the depth of your research, but you you introduce characters such as this a guy named uh, Abe Samuels, a high roller who once admitted to the yep. Chicago American that he bet a, and this is in the early late fifties and early sixties, one hundred ninety thousand dollars a year on pro football games. He was also right. a good friend of Paul Horning, who got in some trouble for gambling. Uh, it, it just it it could have I mean, there, the potential was there for for gambling to really scar professional football, yeah. wasn't it? Samuels got his hands into uh, the football gaming, as I will respectfully call it. Yeah, <laughs> he, he picked up. He picked up a very close friendship with Paul Horning. Yeah. Horning writes about in his biography while Horning was still playing at Notre Dame. And he was part owner of the Douglas Lumber Company. And one of its employees in the offseason working as a salesman was Phil Handler, who was none other than a Chicago Bears coach. My, uh, so the, the tentacles of the gambling industry uh, had a long, long reach, and including some really colorful characters in Chicago. Oh, this that, this Zsa Yitkovich is something yes. you know out of a Damon Runyon play, for God's sake. Yeah. Uh, Zsa Yitkovich is one of the most. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was probably one of the most fun things I, I wrote about in the book. This was a guy who was no more than a. Bleach, long before bleacher bums, right. a bleacher bum groupie that used to yell at the other teams and so forth. <laughs> he was a runner. He was a runner for a high class gambling operation on LaSalle Street by uh, called the Gym Club. Yeah, and he he was also kind of a football groupie. He would hang around with the Bear quarterback at the time, Ed Brown, and also claimed as a close personal friend Rick Caceres. Well, this is all the league needed to hear. Sure. This guy was sure. also one of the debt collectors for the gamblers. And Caceres, believe it or not, was the first person interviewed and had a lie detector test <laughs> in the whole gambling scandal, which eventually cost Alex Kiris and Paul Horning their careers for two years. I know, I know. Uh, in the minute, few t- time we have left, and again, the, the title of, uh, of Chuck's book, it's, his formal title as an author is Charles N. Billington. Uh, the 1963 Chicago Bears, George Hallis and the road to the NFL championship. Hallis might have assumed uh, uh, he, he, the team was sort of George Allen, who was a defensive genius of the team, was sort of under the illusion that he would eventually become coach. Was he not? Yes. By, by 1963, he was acting as the team's general manager. Yeah. He was working as the team's defensive coordinator, and he was also the head of of scouting for college. If you look at the starting lineup of the 63 championship team, I believe it's 14 individuals on that team were uh, selected or traded for by George Allen. Mm. And, of course, he's the same George Allen that brought us Gail Sears and Dick Butkus, and Dick Butkus in, in 65. Yeah, one of the great yeah, drafts yeah. in the history of the NFL. What Hellas's reluctance to... Yeah, I can understand it on some level, Chuck Billington. It's his team. He founded the team. He founded the league. Uh, yes. His There's something sad and, and I don't want to say tragic about his reluctance to give up the reins. Don't, don't you? I got that from I got that from your book. Is that the way you feel? Yes, yes I, I agree with you. A lot of people thought after they won that, finally won the title in '63, yeah. 
that a 68-year-old man would bow out, would leave on the top, uh, gracefully go down. But um, according to David Moranis, who's a great biographer and who wrote a great book on Vince Lombardi, yeah. and other books as well, like Jeff Davis's book on sure, Hallis, sure. It's, pointed out that, it's pointed out that Hallis, his white whale, his Moby Dick was really Vince Lombardi. Yeah. Lombardi was a, a was a, a assistant coach mm-hmm. who helped the Giants beat the Bears in '56. Lombardi was a younger, mid forties, fifty year old whippersnapper coach who had won three titles and wanted to win. And and Hallis was insistent on many people think on catching up with Lombardi and letting not letting Lombardi's legacy eclipse his. Yeah. The problem is the game, as he was 68 years old, the game had changed so much. There was big money. There were different rules. There were different ways in which you could procure players. There were different ways in which you had to treat players because of the money they could make and the fact that they could go to the American Football League. Exactly, exactly. I just, you do a real wonderful job without banging readers on the head about it that to show that the you know the game passed Alice by, and I think yes, that you know he is now some in some ways considered ah this old guy who used to coach the Bears when he was so much more than that. And I think I think you're right. He retired at the end of that season with the championship and uh, and let George Allen run things. And who knows? Who knows? Uh, because you know, except for the. 85-86 Super Bowl. This has not been the, the most well-run organization in the world. Uh, Chuck Billington, paying, go ahead. He was paying George Allen, one more thing, he was paying George Allen $19,000 in 1965, the same year he drafted Butkus and Sears, was acting as the general manager and the defensive coordinator, and the team had gone 9-5. and five. Allen was offered a contract for 48000 a year, plus a training facility and a house in Los Angeles if he went to coach the Rams. He took the job. George Hallis sued him to honor his contract. Yeah. He won in court, but then he dropped the suit, and Allen left, and the Bears were in disarray from 1965, shall I say, until 1985, yeah. some argument, yeah. perhaps. It's a marvelous book, uh, Chuck Billington, the 1963 Chicago Bears. And it's not just a book about football. It's a book about life and about this city and about big business, which football, uh, sort of the seeds of what football has become. I'm now looking at a television set where everybody walking down the aisle of the stadium in Buffalo makes <laughs> makes hundreds of millions of dollars. Chuck, it's a, it's a great book. I can't wait for your next one, pal. Oh, okay. Well, thank you very much, Rick, and thanks for your support and no, your it's time. A ter- it's a terrific book.